where I had to say something. I've been in those situations before where, uh, that's why they're not on here. I didn't put it on my first slide. You guys are wonderful. Thank you. I was like, why isn't that popping up there? Because that's where we're supposed to be. Thanks. Um, there have been a few times in my life where I just had to say something. And uh, it's worked that way out in testimonies. Uh, there was a testimony service recently that Pastor Dave G. and I were at at a pastor's fellowship. And um, I sat there, and I did not have what I would call the unction of the Holy Spirit to speak because normally I will, anytime there's a testimony service, I will usually get up and say something because I just feel the need to praise God. When we sang this morning, that's kind of what I felt like. Certain of those songs, you know, uh, you know just extolling God for who He is. It's just like, you just want to say amen. You just want to rejoice in it. And um, so I didn't share that testimony that day in, at the Pastor's Fellowship. Uh, but as I come week after week to share with you folks, I, I do have a burden on my heart this morning, and that is I hope I can make three, four simple verses somehow applicable to your life. You have been called here for such a time as this to, to be challenged in the area of how is it that we are justified in God's eyes? And that doesn't necessarily sound very exciting to some people, right? Justification, what's that all, all about? Well, you know, Paul often found himself in situations where he wasn't sure if the audience was going to be listening to him or not, uh, whether they would identify with him or not. And so I picked the, the reading out of uh, Acts 13 on purpose today because in that particular place, I think he had something he wanted to express. And as, he was, uh, as, as was customary, he went to the, uh, to the synagogue. Uh, after the law and the prophets were engaged in, they said, uh, Brethren, if you have something you want to share with us, Go ahead. I mean, that would be a wonderful thing if you have a burden on your heart to be invited to speak. Uh, and maybe you've prayed that prayer. Lord, give me an open door. And then God just gave you an open door. Uh, I actually have been asked the question, what does it mean to be saved? How can I be saved? Those are the great questions that you want to be asked. And then you can open up God's Word. Paul, as he's invited in, as he's in this synagogue, he's invited to speak. And I want to just point out a couple things that he did in that uh, as he gave the gospel to them. One, he started in familiar territory. He, he explained to them their history as Jews. And he went right through and he talked about the, the patriarchs, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and then the, all the sons of Jacob. He, he kind of he referenced that. He referenced the, the period of, of slavery that went through Egypt and how God delivered through that. He referenced the, the conquering of the, the land of Canaan. He referenced the, um, the uh, appointment of judges. He, he, he talked about the king, first King Saul, then King David. Uh, and he did this, and he's identifying with them. And they are like, oh, this guy's good. This guy's orthodox. This guy knows what he's talking about. I like this guy. He, he believes the same thing as I do. And then Paul basically gives the gospel. And from this seed of David has come the fulfillment of the promise. And then he unpacks for them the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one that has been anticipated since, really, since the Garden of Eden. 
And so Paul did that in the book of Acts, and, and, and I, I think as we're looking at in, the, in, the, in Galatians study, he certainly knows these Galatians, and he's speaking to the Galatians, and he has a burden on his heart for the Galatians, and, and they are being confused by these people coming in and, and basically saying that there is the gospel of grace but in, in Jesus Christ. We believe that. But you need to live also by the law and they brought these two things together in such a way that Paul was like, no, 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 no. We can't do that. You're, you're going to actually violate the very gospel that you say you believe in. And, and he's got this burden for the Galatians. How do I communicate that, this to them? And so as we, as we uh, look at whether it's Acts, uh, Galatians, any of the epistles of Paul, he will usually try and find some way of, of finding some... Uh, of uh, familiarity with his audience, and then build upon that. That was a long introduction, not only to catch you up on where we are and how Paul works things out, but I will say we are a little bit deficient sometimes as we come into the text of Scripture to not understand all the things that Paul's or Peter or whoever is writing, what their audience may have understood. We're going to talk about things today like promise. We're going to talk about the seed. We're going to talk about justification. We're going to talk about these things that aren't part necessarily of our everyday Christian life. And, and so as we come to the text, we have to come with an, with an understanding. We know some things, but we don't know all things. And we need to be willing to learn not only new things, but deeper things. So as we study in this Galatians uh, and, and the continue, we were introduced to something in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, which we have been in ever since that point, all right, been uh, expanding upon it. But this, it was the idea of justification, one of those words that sounds very theological, very technical, and one that we don't necessarily always understand what it means. And he says in, in uh, Galatians 2, I'll just read the highlighted text, man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Man is not justified by works. He says it again later on. By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul is smack dab in the middle of uh, uh, trying to explain this idea of justification to people that were confused. He says it positively in the middle. He says, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. What Paul was establishing, really based upon the first two lines, he says that we are Jews by nature. What he's saying there, and I said this before, is we're sinners who practice the Jewish faith, and then there's the, the Gentiles who are sinners in other ways, but we're all sinners. And he says, listen, if we are all sinners, we are all destined for condemnation for God, unless there is some mediator, some, some, some way of being declared righteous in God's eyes. And that's what he's trying to convey to the Galatians. And he, and he says, uh, this is that the, the definition we've been using of justification. It's the idea we have received a favorable verdict. If you are a Christian today, this has happened to you. If you are wondering about the Christian faith, just kind of meditate on this slide for just a couple of moments while it's up on the screen. Because there's only two types of people in the world. Those that are destined for condemnation and those that are in Christ and therefore no condemnation is, is, is headed their way. There's only, only two types of people. Justification is the favorable verdict of God, the righteous judge. God is righteous. 
that one who formerly stood condemned, that was me, that is everyone in this room, right, uh, in terms of we are condemned in our sins, but those who have been justified are those who were formerly stood condemned and have now been granted a new status at the bar of divine justice, and that new status is a child of God. You have been declared righteous. You are justified. When God sees you, and folks, listen, this should get you through your day. This will help you share the gospel with others if you can help them understand that God will exercise His wrath, but not upon His children. And so invite people to become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ because their new status as a child of God means they will never experience the judgment of God, the, chast- the, the, the condemnation of God. That's our new status in Christ. So this was the big idea that we have been working on, basically unpacking for the last few, few weeks, really. No other gospel, only the gospel of Jesus Christ as given to us in the Holy Scriptures. No other gospel grants justification, a right standing in God's eyes, right? To sinners before a holy God. Do, you, do we value what we have It is so precious. It changes lives. No other gospel can do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. We looked at verses 1 through 18. We've been in verses 1 through 15. We're going to look at 1 through 14. We're going to look at 15, 16, 17, and 18 today. But as we have unpacked these over a period of uh, two sermons, uh, we've considered that Paul argued the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And just as a reminder, by faith alone, not by adherence to the law, that's, that was Paul's day. That was the context of the Galatians. They were being tr- confused. But Paul argues the doctrine of justification by faith alone from the standpoint of personal experience. I know you've heard this twice already, but if we're to understand the unfolding of Paul's argument, it's healthy for us to step back through his steps so we can understand what today uh, we're going to understand. What does he mean by personal experience? It's the idea of justification by faith alone is evidenced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit, the Holy Spirit, made himself known to me in a way that I will never forget. Do you remember how he made himself known to you? My mouth went from filth to not. My activity went through sinfulness to not, at least in the ways that I was characterized prior to that point. I've seen other people who have come to faith as we, as we sat and discussed, discussed Jesus and as we talked about how a life can change. I have seen them transformed. I can see it on the outside, but I know there's an internal realization that's take place. There is something that's happened internally that only the Spirit of God could have done in that person's life. Have you seen the Holy Spirit come on the scene in such a way where it's undeniable that He has done His work in people's lives? That's, that's the personal experience Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, I know this to be true from personal experience. Galatians, you know it's to be true. I'm saying every Christian in this room should know that this is true. The Holy Spirit indwells you when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. He has made himself known. He is working not only to bring us to faith, but to perfect us or complete us in our faith. That's just beautiful to know that we don't have to walk through this life in happenstance and chance and wondering what's going to happen. No, God has ordered your life in such a way to conform you to the image of Jesus. 
whether good things or bad things or negative things or wonderful things, whatever, whatever is happening in your life, God is using them to make you more and look more and more like Jesus Christ. Romans 8.38 uh, and, and Romans 8.28, 30 there. He's, he's making us look more like Jesus. That's good news. And that's what enables you to get through the day because the Holy Spirit is working in your life, believers. He argues also from the standpoint of biblical teaching. We're not going to go through everything, but we'll say this. Last week we talked about there were six Old Testament Scripture passages. It's the only Scripture that Paul had other than his own writings, which obviously are Scripture but weren't recognized as Scripture necessarily uh, fully in, in, his, in his eyes probably. But he's writing to these, these, all these different people, and he's arguing that justification by faith has always been God's plan. And, and that also ought to just put us in awe. God, from eternity past, before the creation ever was, knew that you would be his child. That you would come to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says justification by faith has always been God's plan. And we can rejoice in it. He, he talked about those who have faith in Jesus are justified and therefore are Abraham's true children. I just realized I left the E off, therefore. All right? Uh, therefore, there you go. Um, those who have faith, like Abraham. Paul has been establishing these Judaizers that are coming in and causing confusion are saying, listen, there's faith in Jesus, but there's also this, this law, the Mosaic law, which is not looked upon in, in the Jewish faith as being anything negative. It's just, it's just this is what you do to make God happy. You do this, and you don't do this, and you do this, and you don't do this. The Judaizers are saying that you can have faith like Abraham, right? They believe that. Judaizers aren't saying you can't have the faith like Abraham. But it's saying that they are justified just because of that faith. We are justified just like Abraham. Abraham was justified because of his faith. That's, the, that's what we considered last week. And therefore, all those who, are who have faith like Abraham and justified by, like Abraham are Abraham's true children. Not, it's not a genetic thing. It's not an ancestral thing. It's not about genetics or uh, DNA or any of that stuff. Then he goes on to say that those trusting in obedience to the law are under its curse. And I, I think this is also a healthy thing for us to remember as 21st century Christians is that there is this thing called the curse that we were under. That's called the condemnation that we've already referenced. But he's saying those who are trusting in obedience to the law, which would have been the actual Mosaic law for the Jews of that day, I will say for, for the Gentiles in our life, it's those who are trusting in their good works. Have you ever had a burden to tell someone that their good works aren't going to be good enough? That burden on your heart for, to tell a child, a parent, a sibling, a friend, a coworker, whatever it might be, to, to just to help them understand they say these wonderful, touchy-feely things, but they're wrong. I give money, I, I, uh, I, I give of my time, I, I do all these things for people because I know it makes God happy. And you, want, you have this burden on your heart. What makes God happy is when people confess His Son as Lord and Savior of their life. The fact that you do good things means nothing to God. And when we're talking about justification... Your good works are as filthy rags in terms of being declared righteous before God. 
We ought to talk to people about what they're, what they're relying upon to be justified in God's eyes because it's not their good works. If they're trusting in their good works, they're under the curse. But those having faith in Jesus, those who have come to faith, that have experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that are living this life, that, that know they are different from the way they used to be, those who are having faith in Jesus who became the curse for them, that I think is what slew me on my bed. Is that Jesus Christ died in my place. He didn't just die for the sins of the world. I believe that since a little, since a little boy. What destroyed me that day was the understanding that he died in my place. I had per- heard people talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I got one of those. No, I didn't, because I never knew this. I never knew this, that Jesus became a curse for me. He who had no sin became sin for me. And when we come to faith in that truth, folks, we receive the promised spirit. When we come to believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay the the debt of sin and, and experience the curse, the condemnation, that thing that, that we would have experienced, he experienced that for us. Now, granted, he rose again. Praise God he rose again. That's the other part. It's not in the text of Scripture that we're looking at, but praise God that Jesus rose again, or our faith would be in vain and our preaching would be in vain, all right? But that's, that's all that we've been studying up to this point. When we get to chapter 3, verse 15 through 18, what we see is not only is he doing it from personal experience and biblical teaching, but he's arguing this doctrine of justification from the standpoint of practical theology. Doesn't that sound exciting? Right? I'm trying to think, of how, what word could I use? Practical theology does not sound exciting. So let me try and excite you with it. Right? The, what I mean is, Paul has theological insight that he's trying to bring practical application to for the, for the audience, whether it be in the synagogue in Acts 13, whether it be in the, 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 peop, the, church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia. And, and I think we today, we can understand some of his theological insights and, and have some practical application today. It's very practical the way Paul does. Remember, he starts off uh, with a way of trying to connect with people, and that's what he does. He, sa- he starts off and he says, let's, let's, let's start off with something that we can all understand. I do this sometimes. I'll try and get, it, get you to buy into something, and then I'll branch off it. Paul just says, hey, let's, let's all agree on something, Galatians and false teachers or Judaizers. Let's all agree on something. Certain man-made covenants are not changed once ratified. Can we agree on that? Yes. All right. Does this may take much more explanation because there's a whole lot written about this, and I don't want to fill you in on everything, but I'm telling you, there's all kinds of people asking questions like, what kind of covenant? Is it a will? Is it, is it this? Is it that? Is it, is it a Roman covenant? Is it a, is it a Greek covenant? Is it a Jewish covenant? I'm telling you, for Paul's purposes and our purposes, it doesn't matter. All right? He's starting with what we know. What do we know? Man-made covenants, certain man-made covenants are not changed once ratified. That idea, this is what we see in the text. It says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. I'm giving you an illustration. Before I make my point, I'm giving you an illustration. Of course, he's building off of what he's already said. I speak in the manner of men. Though it, is only, uh, though it is only a man's, uh, a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. He's like, we can agree with this. 
in man's covenant, once it is confirmed, this idea of confirmed is the idea of ratified. It's the idea that it's, been, it's reached its final approval. Uh, it, is, it is actually being acted upon, right? There's nothing that can change. And, and I'm not going to, if you're a lawyer today, uh, I got good news for you. No loopholes, all right? There's no loopholes in this. This is saying that th- this is a reality of which in their day and their time, they've all understood this. Uh, there are those men, the covenant of men, that cannot be changed. Paul says, we all agree on that. And they say, yes, we all agree on that. So then he says, let's clarify who God made a covenant with. So obviously he made it with Abraham. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We know Abraham's promise was uh, a threefold promise. It, it promised him uh, land. It, it promised him, you know, I'm going to mess it up. So I'm just going to hit the two of them, right? The two of them, he's he's going to be promised uh, land, which hasn't been experienced in its fullness yet, even yet. But I will say this. He was promised that his seed would bless all the nations of the world. That's the part of the promise that we're going to be focused on tonight, this morning, because that's the one that Paul is focusing on as he's talking to the Galatians. So we understand that this covenant was made to Abraham, but it says, and his seed, capital S. We're going to build upon that for a minute. That capital S means we're talking about someone specific. He goes on to explain that Jesus is the other one that God made a covenant with. It says, uh, let, let, let clarify God who made a covenant with, obviously with Abraham, maybe not so obviously with, also with Jesus. He says, he does not say into seeds, plural, little s, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, capital S, and then he identifies that as the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, we're talking about justification, not a word we necessarily use in everyday uh, uh, witnessing or even talking about our faith, although maybe we should. But here's another word that we don't, it's kind of unfamiliar to us, and we have to enter, what is this, what is this seed? What, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to spend some time on that as, as we unpack this. But listen, to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. A promise was made. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. All right? So we see Paul uses an acceptable means of argumentation to point out that Jesus is the focus of the word seed. He tells us right off the bat. He says, uh, and, and then he uses this word seed in a, in a way that is acceptable to that day and age. So the word seed can be translated as either singular or plural. I forget the technical term. I tried to memorize it, and I kept forgetting it, so I'm not even going to try and say it. But the word seed in English can mean singular or plural, right? I cast the seed, right? Well, I didn't get, right? I, I cast the seed, you know? I threw it all out there. It was multiple seeds. But then we can also talk about the seed, individual seed. The word itself is written in such a way where it's in a singular form and it never changes that form. It just means, and context will tell you whether it's talking about the one or the many. And what Paul is saying is that traditionally this word is being understood as plural. Genesis 21, 12 says, But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad. This is talking about Ishmael. Or because of your bondwoman, uh, Hagar. Uh, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. This is just another use of the term seed. We'll look at other uh, uh, uses of it later. Uh, and, uh, but he's saying, listen, uh, for in Isaac your seed. We know that Abraham was made the promise 
That promise passed to Isaac. But God is identifying to Abraham right here that it's through Isaac that the seed, little s, shall be called. Okay, so this isn't, you know, is this singular? Is this plural? Well, actually, it's probably both. It's probably both in New Testament theology. As we talk about the insights we have, practical theology, we say we understand the, the, this new teaching, now we have to apply it. Uh, and, and, and God is saying to, to um, Abraham, listen, Isaac is the one that is going to be the line of promise. He says uh, in the next chapter, in your seed. Now, this is also labeled a little s, but I think in New Testament, we could probably put a capital S here. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So seed is used in both the singular, the plural, all the time. Paul is just seizing on that nuance. And he's trying to convey something. This is the idea of, I know something that you don't know, uh, Judaizers and, and uh, uh, Galatians. And it, it, what he's saying is, his point is that without capital S seed, Jesus, there can be no blessing to the nations through just the little s seed of Israel. Paul is saying, listen, in God's eternity past, as he's figured it and working this plan, Listen, this idea of the seed that the Jews have held on to, the Israelites have held on to, saying that they are special because they are the, the physical seed, they are the physical descendants of Abraham. Paul is, is pointing out, listen, I've already established it's those who have faith in Christ that are the genuine children of Abraham. And he's saying here that it is, it is the capital S seed that is the reason for this this blessing that's going to go through the nations, which is the blessing that we have experienced if you come to faith in Jesus Christ. So he's, he's drawing, he drew something. He said, listen, let's all agree. There's man-made covenants that, that uh, can't be changed. He says, now as we consider this covenant that God made with Abraham, it, he's basically saying it can't be changed either. And it was established through Abra- in Abraham, with Abraham, through Isaac, and ultimately will be fulfilled and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So now let's focus on what is not understood. Now, they understand this idea. There's so much of commonality between Paul and the Judaizers, but now he's going to say there's some certain things that they are not in agreement about. And so what, what, is, what is not understood that Paul needs to explain? Well, it's the relationship between the Mosaic law and the Abrahamic promise. And, and, and so we're going we're gonna to start that today, and then actually next, next time I'm preaching on this uh, passage, we'll be looking a little bit more about the purpose of the law, because Paul is, is declaring that the Abrahamic promise uh, is, is uh, in, it's, well, I'll let the text say it, all right, Rela- speaking of this, we say, first of all, one predates the other, that's pretty simple, because he explains in verse 17, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should be, make the promise of no effect. He's saying, listen, let me take you some theological insight. There's something we actually can agree on is that the law which was uh, uh, given, it was 430 years after the promise. It's a long time. There's another text of Scripture that says 400 years. There is a simple way to, to make those, uh, the 400 or the 430, uh, uh, understandable. I'm just not going to spend the time today to go through that nuance. But Paul is saying 430 years. It's the larger number, uh, but it's saying the same thing, and that is this. The promise came first, 
and then the law. All right? So he's saying, as we understand the relationship between the Mosaic law and Abrahamic covenant, we know one precedes the other. But we also are going to see in this same verse that they are not in competition and they are not contradictory. Right? So, so when we think about the, the we, we, people use this all the time. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not under law anymore. I'm under grace. Okay, so listen, we can probably have a discussion about exactly what that means. But let's not put these things in, in competition with one another as if they're contradictory to one another. I understand grace because of the law. We're going to get there. But Paul's saying, listen, as you take the Mosaic law, which is good and right and holy and used of God, and you take the Abraham, Abrahamic promise, which is right and holy and good, don't make them as if they're competitors. Don't, don't make them as if they're somehow contradicting one another. Because they're not. But remember, this is helpful for us if we understand what are we talking about. We're talking about justification by faith alone, not by the works of the law. If we're talking justification by faith, there is no competition because justification is only by faith, not by the works. They're not contradictory because justification is by faith. Works has its place, but not in the area of justification. So I hope, I hope you're following me with that because that's really the, the next point as we get in. Oh, this is, this is what he's saying. This is the argument. The law cannot annul, change, uh, uh, you know, it, it can't annul the com- covenant. The law came after the promise. So the law can't annul the covenant. It's talking about the promise, right? So the law, it, can't, it cannot annul, it can't change, it can't do away with the promise. The promise existed beforehand that it should make the promise of no effect. Paul is communicating that these Judaizers were trusting in the law, and he's saying, the law is wonderful, but I'm talking about the promise that all the nations of the world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. That's what I'm talking about. What are you guys talking about? We're talking about the law. He's like, you're confusing people. The relationship between Abrahamic uh, promise and the Mosaic law is, is right and good. When speaking about the means of justification, they are also not complementary. This is where I, I, I wanted to draw on this. There is this relationship, and Paul's going to explain that relationship in the following text, right, After, in a future sermon. There is a relationship. Right now we're just seeing that it's not in competition, it's not contradictory, and, and, uh, but they are also not complementary. In other words, they don't, you can't bring them together. They don't complement one another when you're talking about justification in the sense that the Judaizers were doing it. They were saying in the context of justification, they believed Abraham was justified by his good works, by his obedience to the law that hadn't been given for 400, wasn't going to be given for another 430 years. There, yeah, but, but God is saying, but they believe that, that somehow Abraham obeyed the law before it existed. And, and Paul's saying, no, that, that's not the way it works. Don't bring the two in close proximity with one another for the purpose of justification. You can definitely bring the two together just not for the purpose of justification. They are not complementary. They are not contradictory. They are not in comp- competition. There is a relationship, and I'm going to explain it to you, Paul says, but right now you just got to, to trust me that
that this is what's true. He goes on to say, for in the inheritance of the law, for if the inheritance of the law, let me try that one more time, for if the inheritance is of the law, if we can, that inheritance is this promised, uh, all the things that are promised to us in Scripture, right? But specifically, if we talk about the inheritance of the land for, for Abraham, the, uh, the experience of, of the, the blessing to all the nations, if that is of the law, Right? And, and this is the supporting of this point here, right? They're not complimentary. He's saying, listen, if the inheritance is of the law, if we could get all that we wa- have in Christ without Christ, it would be through the law, then it's no longer of promise. We've done away with the Abrahamic covenant. If the Mosaic covenant was, if it superseded the Abrahamic covenant, well, then we could have talk about something. But Paul's saying, no, it can't change. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. And I think I just realized I forgot a text of Scripture, so I'm going to go back in a minute. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. It's a, this is the conclusion of this argument, justification by faith, by personal experience, by biblical teaching, and by, uh, by practical theology. I'm taking all that we have in Christ, and I'm applying it to you, Galatians, and I'm applying it to us here in the United States. We have to be trusting in justification in Christ alone because that is the truth. That is biblical, and that is what we're after. What I failed to mention was in this text. It says, The law cannot annul a covenant that it should make the promise of no effect. Right? That's part of the teaching. But I, want to, I didn't highlight it, but I wanted to bring your attention to this part where it says, That was confirmed beforehand by God and Christ. I skipped right over it, and I apologize. Right? Paul is saying the law, which was 430 years later, Cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed. There was a covenant that was confirmed. This is talking about the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. And if you turn to Genesis 15, we don't have time to do it today. But if you go to Genesis 15 and you engage in the text where God confirms the covenant between between himself and Abraham, what happens in that situation is uh, a sleep falls upon Abraham and God basically walks Abraham through the the covenant ratification process, which is you divide animals in half, you separate them, and you walk through them together. When a covenant is between two people, you walk together through it saying, may it be done to me as it was done to these animals if I violate the covenant. But since God is the only one, God, through a, the, uh, the, through a vision, a dream, uh, appears to Abraham, God's the only one in the form of a fire, goes through those animals saying, God is saying, may it be done to me as I walk through. And that could never happen to God. It's, it's basically saying, God is saying, I am promising you this, Abraham. I am, I am confirming, I'm ratifying the covenant that I have with you, but you have nothing to say. I am going to keep this covenant no matter what. May it be done to me. Genesis 15, read it and and be amazed, right? But he's saying this, the law that came much later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God. That's the Abrahamic covenant in Christ. Somehow, Paul is saying through his theological insights and his understanding of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is, that Jesus Christ was active in Genesis 15. He's saying, listen, all that is going on and all of this should blow our minds. Because we talk about the gospel as if it's 
Just, you know, a simple thing. It's a beautiful thing, and it is simple to understand, but oh my word, it's, God has been unfolding his, fan, uh, his plan uh, uh, ever since creation. So that, that's where we're at. So I, I wanted to just mention this, this idea that justification by faith in Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, fulfillment of God's promise, right? The Abrahamic covenant is that all the nations of the world will be blessed through the seed. We have identified the seed as Christ. So the justification by faith in Jesus this, that is the fulfillment of the blessing to all nations. We have been justified as Americans. We're not Jewish, right? And we're many years later, but it's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. So let's just focus on promise, and I'm looking at my time here, all right? Let's just focus on promise just for a couple minutes, all right? So one of the things that I, and as I was reading, I, I don't think these were his words, but it, it, this is the way it made sense to me. If God speaks, it's true. Can we all agree with that? Okay, good. All right. So God's word is God's promise, not in the sense that I've been using it as Abrahamic. All right, I'm just saying, if God says something, it's true. We can treat it as a promise. How many of you, uh, don't raise your hands. Many of you probably have the book, Promises of God, right? A little uh, devotional, and you walk through it and encourage yourself. Well, we can be encouraged by the promises of God. Look at what some of the other promises that God has made, right? Uh, God's promise to the serpent. How can we be encouraged by God's promise to the serpent? Well, look what it says in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, little s, and her seed, capital S. He shall bruise your head and, uh, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the idea right here. And the very first sin has just happened. Uh, the separation of sin has, has taken place. God is saying, here's the cursed serpent that, that the seed of the woman which is Jesus. This is called the first gospel. It's right here. And, and it says, listen, your seed, there's going to be between you and their seed, there's going to be enmity. You will, uh, he's going to bruise your head. He's going to give you a death blow. This is a promise of God. Jesus, by his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and coming again, that whole thing, there is a death blow to Satan. But Satan, all he's able to affect towards the seed, towards Jesus, is he's going to bruise his heel. Now, we don't want to make light of the crucifixion, the burial, right? We don't want to make light of it. But in terms of, as we, as we consider eternity, yeah, it was Jesus overcame the bruise, bruised heel. Satan will never overcome the bruise to the head. As we go, uh, we consider God's promise to Abraham uh, that the, this is what we've been studying. So I'm not going to, the only reason I really wanted to put the slide here is to see that the word seed, uh, it says in you, uh, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Uh, and that's actually uh, the other verse where it says through your seed, that'll take place. The word in verse seven is to your descendants. That's the exact same word. It's just fleshed out in the context as the plural. That's that I probably should have shown that slide a long time ago. All right. But let's think about God's promise to David. God's promise to David says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, little s, talking about Solomon, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, talking about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, Solomon, uh, forever, not Solomon. So this promise was made to David. You have promises in the garden. You have promises throughout Scripture, promises to Abraham, promises to David. And God keeps all his promises. And it says this, I will establish the throne of Solomon's kingdom forever. That's talking about Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. I mean, I've only shared three with you, but consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God in Him, in Jesus, are yes. God, have you promised this in your word? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And it's all because of what Christ did. It's all because of who Christ is and what He has done. So know that our gospel grants justification to sinners before a holy God. That's what we can celebrate. And the question that I think would be before unbelievers today is the idea, are you ready to receive God's promise? As in the initial time. Look what, well, look what uh, uh, Paul, uh, Peter says on the day of Pentecost. Remember, Peter, scaredy cat Peter, right? Uh, uh, denying Christ Peter. Holy Spirit comes and indwells him, gives this wonderful sermon. 3,000 people are saved, and this is how he ends the sermon. It's with an invitation. He says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of, Lord, of, of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, something that was talked about in Galatians. But notice this. For the promise is to you and to your children, right? This promise that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. This is what Peter's referring to on this great day of Pentecost. For the promise is to you and to your children, and not only them, and to all who are afar off. Can we say missions? We can say us. We're afar off from this time and this place. But we can even say today the gospel is not done doing what it's called to do. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And God is not done calling people to himself. And so if you're an unbeliever here this morning, right, you're someone that you would say, no, I don't, I've never believed in this Jesus stuff, but you have my attention. I do not want to experience the condemnation. I would like to experience this thing called justification. If you're going to experience justification, you have to believe in the promise that came only through the seed. And as an unbeliever, that might be a lot. As someone not familiar with Scripture, that might be a lot to take in. And I'm just saying we're here to help you take it in. But for us that have been around Christianity for decades, we may not understand the simplicity of the gospel. and We may not understand the promise and the seed and justification. And so we are also, we need to be ready to receive God's promise. Because all his promises are anchored in Jesus Christ. And if you are going to claim a promise, claim it in full faith that it's anchored in who Jesus is and what he's done. And that means as we leave here today, and as we struggle with the burdens that we want to share with others, and, and then we look at their life and we're like, we, I really need to tell you the truth. Again, using my illustration, that's looking out the window. As you see those outside and you want it, you want But look in the mirror and claim God's promises for yourself. Look in that mirror and say, God says he will forgive. God says he will never leave me or forsake me. God says whatever promise you might grab hold of. And then remember, that promise is anchored in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And I hope you're able to receive that. And I hope it, it infects you in such a way where you will infect others with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your clarity in your word to help us understand all these things. I thank you for the burden of Paul's heart as he spoke to the Galatians, as he spoke to the 
uh, the people in Acts 13. I thank you the way you gifted him to explain the, the difficult and to make it simple or to make the simple even clearer. And so, Father, as we struggle sometimes to understand nuances of our faith, I pray, Lord, that you would just make your word alive to us by engaging in it, by studying it, by applying it to our life. Thank you for the theological insights that Paul has that he was able to make practical to the people of his day. Lord, as we think about all that we've learned in this text, Lord, help us to to live it out daily. Help us to claim your promises. Help us to understand exactly how us coming to faith in Christ actually changes me today. Lord, I thank you for the, for the changed life that is evident in every believer. I thank you for the, for, the, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, as we conclude our sermon time, and as we get ready to sing another song, Lord, I pray that you would work through your Spirit in our lives for our growth and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, 